screen. It says, and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still in Jerusalem. Now, if you go over, that's 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 Second Samuel. But now, if you go over into First Chronicles, it says basically the same thing, a little bit different. But it says in Second, um, in First Chronicles, it says, and it came to pass that after the year was expired, at the time that kings go out to battle, Joab left forth the power of the army and wasted the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried at Jerusalem. And what I want to talk to you about, we're going to read some more of that, but what I want to talk to you about, it says at a time when kings go to war, and in the back of that it says David stayed home. This whole conference is about manning your station. Manning your station. And I contend that everything that happened to David from that day forth happened as a direct result of him not being at his station. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. There'll be a whole lot of messages preached along this particular passage. But it always nailed me that we didn't deal with why things turned out the way they did. I've heard it preached, you know, talk about David's family life. We talk about his sin with Bathsheba. We talk about his murder of Uriah the Hittite. We talk about the, the sword never leaving his household as a result of his reluctance to do what he was supposed to do, to be where he was supposed to be, to man his station. That's what it all comes down to, is he missed his appointment from God. See, David wasn't just your typical king that, you know, he was really chosen. You know, the Bible says God gives men authority. He places kings, presidents, you name it. He places them in power. But now the way David came about was a direct result of the Holy Spirit and the lineage of Jesus. So his, his position wasn't just a kingly position. It was an anointed position that was sanctified of God. So when he was called to go to war, you got to remember, this is the guy, the same guy, the same David, who as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as basically a child smote that giant. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And he took him out with a rock. So his was no mamby-pamby light king position. The, the, the word I'm looking for, his was no lightweight position in the order 
of God. But he missed it. Keeping the main thing the main thing. That's what we say in the hood. Whatever is true, whatever is holy, whatever is pure, whatever is righteous, you can add a million words in there. But if it's of God, keep your mind on it. If it's of kingdom work, keep your mind on that. Don't get sidetracked and don't get caught up in the stuff that's going on and the, the words that are taking place in the world today because if you get caught up in that, you'll miss your purpose and your plan for your life. But when kings go to war, now check this out. I say it this way. Um, suppose, let's just suppose David had gone where he was supposed to go when it was time to go where he was supposed to go. Let's just, uh, just for a holy imagination, let's imagine, Randy, that he did that. He just, he went, when, when kings go to war, he said, okay, boys, saddle up my chariot. I'm rolling out with the fellas. We're going to take out a few guys, and we're going to do this thing up real big. We're going to honor God, and we're going to take these kingdoms for God. Suppose he had taken that position and that, that stance. What would have happened? Ooh. Now, obviously, we know the word of God is sovereign. So I don't think God is was sitting around going, wow, I'm surprised. I, didn't, I thought David was going to go. I don't think he's sitting around shocked going, man, he really let me down. You know, I, David, I just knew you were going to go, man. I don't see him doing that. But for, for, for try me's sake, let's suppose he did do what he was supposed to do. Well, one thing would happen, we know for sure. There'd never be the sword in his house. We know that, which means his son would not hate him. Absalom would not kill Ammon, Amnon for, for raping his sister. Bathsheba would still have a husband. Uriah, the Hittite, would still be alive. Whoo! So he would, matter of fact, he'd still have the joy of the Lord the way he had it before Nathan had to come to him and tell him, here's what's going to happen. You know? Does that make sense? So all these things would be in order if he just done one thing. Y'all know when the king goes out to war, he ain't going out with the foot soldiers. He ain't going out swinging swords. and You know what I'm saying? He's going, hey, I want this regiment over here. I want these guys over here. Here's how we're going to do this. He's calling shots. He's safe. So why not go? It's just a day. You know what I'm saying? You blew your whole life and whole life's plan for the moment instead of doing what you were supposed to do. Now, why is that so important to me? Here's why. If you don't man your stations, everybody around you suffers. The children of Egypt were going around the mountain all of them years. And nobody once stopped to say, hey, man, that's the same tree we passed last year. Because <laughs> I'm that kind of guy. Look here, Moses. Hey, man, I know. 
I know you are sent from God, but look at bros. That tree right there, I put my name on it last year. Look, there's my initials, S-A. So we are going in a circle, baby. We need to rethink this thing and figure out where we're supposed to be going. Am I making sense? We're talking about manning your stations. I grew up as a child of a man who never owned me, never claimed me, never wanted me, and the, to the day he died, denied not only my existence, but his part in my existence. Now, we know now because of blood tests. We know now because my brothers found me. And, and, we, and I look just like my dad. You know what I'm saying? We know whose I am. But here's what happened. We're talking about man in your stations. And I'll say it this way. Had my father, my biological father, owned me, and I'm pretty sure that 50 to 75% of the things that I went through as a child, as a young man, and even as a grown man, I wouldn't have gone through. I wouldn't have gone through. You know why? Because I would have had a sense of identity of who I am. You know why? Because I would have been marked with some type of staple that says, this is George's son right here. And that would have caused me to have a level of pride that I never had until much, much, much later in life. Because when a, when a child doesn't know his father, he seeks that identity in other places. And the world will throw them at him. The world will give him all he wants. I was in gangs. You know why I was in the gang? Because the leader of the gang said, man, come on, we got you. And he was older. He was, you know, bigger guy, older, and he was strong enough to say, you know, we die with each other, we fight, you know what I'm saying, we, we ride and die together. This is teamwork, baby, and you're on the team. And so I would steal. We got into fights. You know, I, I, I've shared it before, man. I, I won a whole lot of fights, and I lost some doozies. But when I, and when I say fights, when I, when I was in the gang, Packing a gun meant you were a punk. We did it with these. Now, I've had my jaw broke. I've been stabbed. I've been beat with bicycle chains. Like I said, but I lived to fight another day. And some of my best friends in life were the guys I fought because we established our relationships and our hierarchy based on those fights. I'm not condoning violence I just grew up in a violent society. I grew up in a violent world. That's, that's, that's how we answered things. Praise God, I was able to get around later on because my father didn't, but I was able to get around some men who decided to be fathers for me. So again, we were talking about suppose um, David is where he's supposed to be. Then if he's where he's supposed to be, he doesn't make the wrong-headed decision. It doesn't lead him to that census. Remember that census he had where he wanted to count the men and everything, and, and that was against God's word? It was against God's word. And so God pronounced judgment as a result of that. Well, if you'd have been where you're supposed to be, you'd have never did that. When 
you're manning your post, sometimes it's going to get boring. When you're manning your station, sometimes it's going to be hard. There's going to be some challenges. It won't be fun all the time. But when you're supposed to, when you're where you're supposed to be in the will of God, everything works out great. It might not work out great right then, but trust me, it's great later on. When you look back over it and say, man, I'm sure glad I didn't fall for the banana of the tailpipe. My uh, um, my brother told me this one day. My brother Admiral, who is my brother, my brother Admiral, my brother Greg, my brother Gary, they're some of the greatest preachers that I know. And so, every now and then, I have to preach with them. Praise God, I get to be the singer in the family, cause I, cause I get intimidated. But they, he told Admiral told me this one day. He said, suppose David only had one wife, and that was the wife he decided to love, cherish, honor, and no matter what, it'd be his only wife. Because David was married before he slept with Bathsheba. The way the Bible sets it up, it's, it's you know, we, we would call that adultery today. There's something to be said about being married to one woman and sticking with that one woman. There's actually something victorious about that. The bottom line is, if you're going to be a man, there are some things that go with being a man. And the very first one is learn your position, learn how to stay in your position, and then benefit from staying in your position. Because the real benefit of staying in your position doesn't come right away. See, the joy of, like, the, my, my situation, the joy of my being in my position is my son, man. Woo! I love my son. I'm so proud of him. And he is my promise. He is my legacy. Solomon, the son of David, when it was all over, you know how many wives he had. You know what he said? It's all, it was all vanity. <laughs> the wisest man to ever live said it was all vanity. If you don't get anything from that, then you're just not paying attention. Because when you, when you step outside of the place that you're supposed to be in, then the enemy has access to you to your heart, to those around you, and he has influence on your life. Solomon married all those women, and he had to please all those women's families. Some of them he married, so thinking there would be peace for his kingdom, all he did was cause more distraction. The reality is, I believe that it's just like with David. If Solomon had just said, you know what, I'm going to have me one wife, and that's going to be it. One of the things that God is after in us is brokenness. And here's how it comes across. When you're at your weakest, when you're at your lowest point, when you're at the place to where you think, okay, I can't do anymore. 
I promise you, that's where God's going. Okay, I got it, baby. I, I could have it. Don't worry. Because you're going to let it go at that point. So go on and get broken now. That's my thing. Take yourself to that place of brokenness now. Get there as soon as you can. And then let God do everything else. Let him have it. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. Because if you don't, you're going to keep on bumping your head. I spent a lot of years, a lot of years, trying to figure out who I was. And I shared this with, with Elder Greg. And I shared it with Pastor Allen. And I've talked many, many times. When I was nine years old, I, my brothers and I sang in a group. We had a professional group called the Gospel Starlights. And we were signed to Savoy Records. And, and we, would, we would literally tour. We would literally, during, during the summer when school's out, all summer, we were on the road. And then during, when school was in, we would travel on the weekends. And the pastor at my church was one of the greatest singers I ever knew, Reverend Bush. And um, the assistant pastor was a guy named, well, I won't say his name. But anyway, because we were poor, and because um, we, we weren't always as clean as the other children in the church, we, weren't, we didn't have, my mom took care of us and made sure we had clean clothes and the stuff we had, yeah, it was raggedy. Really raggedy. You know, I had shoes that you know, when we go to school, I remember I would have to put cardboard, I'd tear up a cereal box and put it in the bottom of my shoes because we had holes in them. Because we can't afford to buy them more shoes. And that's how, you know. And, and, and this minister who I looked up to told me one day, we had just finished singing, and it was a song I got a, a verse in, I had a verse in. And for whatever reason, at the end of the night, the program was over, he was talking to me, and here's exactly what he said. You'll never be a singer. You'll, you'll never be a singer. You'll ne you're not good enough. You don't have a voice. You'll, you, you know, nothing. He told me that at a time when my mother, my brother said this in the pulpit. He told me that at a time when my mother, it hadn't been long before that, that some women in our church decided to write to my mother, you need to give them boys up. They have no future. They're going to end up in prison. There's no, you know, you can't take care of them. You'll, there'll never be nothing. And they, Put that curse on us. They told my mama that. My sister found the letter, read it to us. This pastor told me that. Never be a professional musician. You'll never be a singer. Nine years old. I look up to this guy. So I, somehow, it's not hard, but somehow I absorbed that. I took that in. I, I absorbed it. It was coming from him. He's a pastor. He works a job. They got a nice car. You know, their kids are clean. They, they live in a nice house. He must know what he's talking about. So I took it. And I held on to that just about all my life. To the point that, never, not, never mind that 
Nine years old, we're already traveling. Twelve and a half, I get a bass. A friend gives me a bass. I start learning. Thirteen, I go on the road with my idols. Um, the group, the same group that, I don't know if you know who Sam Cook is, Lou Rawls. The same group that those guys came from, 13 years old, they call me, hey, man, we want you to go on the road with us. And so I, my mom lets me go on the road. So I'm singing. I'm already a professional. I'm singing. Now, I didn't go on the road necessarily because I could make a whole bunch of money. I went on the road because, in my mind, at least it will be a, a mouth that my mama won't have to try to feed. I might not make any money, Steve. I might not do anything, but at least my mama won't have to worry about me. And prayerfully, I'll make enough money to send some back home. Now, I did end up, I went on the road. I ended up helping put my brother through school. I ended up helping my family. But I still got this, nine years old, I still got this declaration that this God made over me. You'll never be. You'll never be. So, years go by. I've had two record deals by the time I'm, I'm, I'm 22. And I signed to Warner Brothers as a writer. And we're having success. And I'm out touring with Bruce Hornsby and Bonnie Raitt. And I'm touring with all these artists, and I'm signed to Warner Brothers. And the president of Warner, Warner Brothers, which is Warner Brothers Chapel Music, the largest publishing company in the world, calls me and says, Sammy, we want, you, we want to fly you to New York. We've got somebody we want you to write with. They fly me into New York, um, um, Park and 6th, Park Avenue and 6th is the Time Warner building. Fly me to New York, put me up in the penthouse on top of the building, which is reserved for the presidents of the company and all these bigwigs. They put me in one of those penthouses. And, the, and Kenny McPherson, who's the president of, of Warner at the time, sits me down in his office at a meeting the day I got there and says, listen, man, we see you as the next Michael Bolton. We see you as the next James Ingram. We see you as the da-da-da. So what we want to do is we want to get you a record deal. I already got a publishing deal. I'm doing well. But we want to get you a record deal, and we want to go after this thing for your career. So he said, we got, we got somebody we want you to write with. And so they set me up in the studio that's in Warner Brothers. And I go in the studio, and who's sitting in there but Ray Charles? Ray Charles. Now, now I didn't tell you this, but I'd, I'd played with him a couple of years before that. I played with, played bass with him. He needed a bassist. He came through and played for the, with the Louisville Orchestra, and they needed a bassist. And I was recommended through the Musicians Union to play, so I played with him. So anyway, I'm, I'm in this thing, and I'm, I'm going to go real fast. We basically sit, and we spend time, and we work on songs and everything. And be, right before, Pastor Allen, before we finished writing, I had played him a song that I'd already written. Because he said, well, let me, let me hear your style. Now, mind you, it's Ray Charles. You know what I'm saying? I, my piano thing is, you know, it's, it's all right. This is Ray Charles. When I play the song, a song called Lighthouse, I play it and I sing it for him. We go about our thing, we continue writing, at, you know, and at the end of it, he says, sing that song you uh, sung earlier, sing that again. You know, and he's Ray Charles. 
sing that song you sung again, baby. I, I, I want to hear that. And I, I sing the song, and he put his hand on my hand on the piano. Mind you, he's blind, but he put his hand on my hand on the piano. And he said, you need to be singing your own songs. I don't hear that as a compliment. I hear that through the nine-year-old filter. You're not good enough. You see, you, you see where I'm going? A curse, man. Because my dad wasn't where he was supposed to be. I took on that curse. So I'm hearing it through this nine-year-old filter. You'll never be what you're supposed to be. But in reality, he's saying, man, you're good. In reality, he's saying, I, you know, you're going to waste your time just writing. You need to be singing. It happened again. It happened over and over and over again. I'd be affirmed by people that I looked up to. That I, the greatest, the, some of the giants of the industry. And I still hear it through that nine-year-old filter. <laughs> what I've never been. And it wasn't until years later, man, I was on another another event, and I'd gotten to know Ray Charles's manager pretty well because he also managed the group that I toured with like a second hand kind of thing. He handled the impressions. Now if you know the impressions, you know that Curtis Mayfield founded the impressions. We're in this we're on this thing, I'm with the impressions. And Ray Charles is on the is on the show that night. So I'm sitting in the way the Apollo is, the star dressing rooms go up. And the band and all that goes down. But then the area I'm in, because I'm an MD, it's kind of right on the first floor. So everybody's got to pass my room. So I'm sitting in the room, and I'm talking to another guy. And Potiphar was the manager's name, Ray Charles. He's walking through the hallway with him. And I'm sitting in the room talking. And as I'm sitting in the room, um, he recognized my voice and sticks his head in. Hey, Sammy, what you doing? You know, just speaks to me and everything. And then he says, man, what are you doing still playing? Hmm. You, you're still a musician? Great job. To Potiphar, I saw him later on. He said, man, I've had no less than seven different times he's talked about you. You need to be singing. That's when it became, oh, oh. He doesn't mean I suck. He means I need to be seriously getting after this thing. He means I can have a future doing this. He means he likes me. No, 
remember Rudolph, red-nosed reindeer, the little reindeer kissed him, and he ran around, she likes me, she, you know, remember that? That's how I was. I was Rudolph that day, man. You have an opportunity in your life this day forward. You have an opportunity to not only get in your position to man your station, but you have an opportunity to enjoy the benefits of being where you're supposed to be. Because when you're where you're supposed to be, ain't no devil in hell that can mess with you. It's not saying he won't come at you. It's not saying there won't be attacks. The Bible assures us that there's going to be trials and tasks and temptations and tribulations. But it also says, I've overcome. When I say I, I mean God himself. Jesus has overcome. And because he's overcome, we are overcomers. Does that make sense? So, what I'm going to ask you to do today is first I'm going to ask you this simple question. How many will be honest with yourself and say, and I'll be the first one to raise my hand, say I haven't always been in my post. I haven't always been where God told me to be. I haven't always heard him and listened. And then how many will say, honestly, I want to be on my post. And I want to reap the rewards of being on my post. If that means a peaceful, loving marriage, that's what I want. If that means children that respect and honor me through God, then that's what I want. If that means success on my job because I'm walking in the will and the word of God, then that's for me. What do you do when you've done all you can? Seems like it's never enough. How do you smile when your friends have turned and walked away? What do you give? You've given all you have. It seems like you can't make it through. Well, you stand. When there's nothing left to say, you just stand. Let the Lord have his way. After you've done all you can stand.